Um, but this morning we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 25. And we're going to finish up chapter 9, and we're going to go into chapter 10 and verse 4. One of the, um, one of the I guess it's a very small tradition in my house. We, yeah, we could call it a micro-tradition. A micro-tradition at my house is a couple days after Halloween every year, um, there's a, a video that gets released, and you probably know what I'm talking about already. There's this viral video that's released a couple of days after Halloween by um, one of the late-night talk show hosts. I think it's Jimmy Kimmel. It, I've never actually seen his show before, but over the last few years, he asked basically the American public to... He, he asked parents to trick their children. Um, it's a, kind of a cruel joke. He says, go to your kids the next morning after Halloween, after they've gathered all their candy, and take it away, hide it somewhere, and tell them that you've eaten all of their candy, and then video their reaction to it, right? And so it's hilarious because, I mean, what you find is that there's a lot of really bratty kids in America. Uh, their reactions, just these vehement um, crying tantrums, you know, it, after a while it just kind of gets old. It's the same old thing. But this year we watched it, and there was this one little girl who I thought um, was really hilarious because she didn't just pitch a fit. She actually gave, like, justification for why she was angry, And this is what she said. She said, I got all dressed up. And I walked, like so serious, and I walked all around the neighborhood. And you got all of the candy, right? You didn't do anything, she said. You didn't do anything, and yet you got all of the candy. And when I heard her say that, I thought, wow. Wow. That is how we feel about so many things in life, right? That, did you see what I did? Did you see how hard I worked? Did you see how much I've labored? Have you, have you, have you been watching me? And, and maybe you've had those moments when there's somebody who, they've been doing all the wrong things, and yet they get what you think should be your reward. That makes us angry, right? I want you to keep that that thought. I want to keep. I want you to keep that image in your mind this morning as we as we read this passage from Romans chapter nine. I'm gonna. I want to say just a couple more words before I read it. The first four verses that I'm gonna read, um, I'm not going to go in depth in on the sermon. Um, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'm just gonna say a couple sentences about them now that we're jumping in kind of to Paul's thought midstream, that he just finished in verse 24, basically saying that Jesus, and that God calls not just the Jews, but he also calls the Gentiles. And like this has been a theme of the whole letter, but especially in chapter 9, he's kind of explaining this. And he just says this phrase that God's people are not just, they're not just Jews, but they're also Gentiles. That would have come as no surprise to the readers, many of whom were Gentiles, But he's just explaining that more, and he does that by quoting from Hosea and then Isaiah. And so I'm going to start just by reading those two quotes, um, where there's sort of a justification or an explanation of why the Gentiles are also included in God's people. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 25, says this. This is God's word. As indeed he, God, says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now in verse 30, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. This is God's word. Um, It is completely and utterly true. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know that truth. He wants us to know him. So let me pray and ask that he would help us to understand. Father, we do come to you this morning, both, as Jake said, as your children, but also as ones who are sick and need once again to be reminded of where there is hope, where there is peace, where there is joy. Because, Father, what we know and what we've seen in our own lives is that in so many ways we have sought that in other places, that we've sought to establish our own righteousness, that we've sought to do that in our work, in our parenting, in our school, in so many places. And Father, it's just left us insecure and tired. And we need to hear again of the good grace of our Lord Jesus. So would you show it to us today? We ask this in His name. Amen. There's a a big question that's kind of looming over this whole passage and really starting at the beginning of chapter 9 after Paul kind of finishes at the end of chapter 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ and then he begins talking about the Jews. He begins talking about Israel. Of course, Paul was a Jew and so he had um, a lot of credibility to talk about the subject. And the question that's sort of looming over this passage is this, if If Jesus is so wonderful, and if Jesus is the Messiah, then why aren't more Jews coming to Him? Why aren't there more Jews who are are following Him? If, If they have been predicting and longing for and waiting for and anticipating this coming Messiah, this coming Savior, then why aren't more of them actually 
coming to Jesus. And Paul's answer, and I'm just going to give it very, very simply, and then we'll, we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking this, as Paul's answer is this, that more Jews are not coming to Jesus because their goodness stands in the way of them seeing what he's offering. That from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way up to the New Testament, that, that, that the Old Testament has affirmed the fact that righteousness comes by faith. That the righteous shall live by faith. That Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But what Paul is saying is that the Jews have latched on to the law in order not to receive it by faith, but by works. And it's their own goodness that's get, that gets in the way. Now, some of y'all might kind of hear this language, and you might hear um, Jews and Gentiles, and it, it might sort of make you want to kind of nod off to sleep. It's okay. It's okay if that's, if that's true of you, if you kind of think, this sounds like a history lesson that Paul is giving us, because this isn't something that really I'm that concerned about um, anymore. I'm not really concerned about whether then sort of the Jews actually accepted Jesus as Messiah or not. It's not that big of a deal to me. So why is this relevant? And I, and I, want, to, I, I want to stress to you, and as we, as we unpack this, that this is one of the most relevant things that we could possibly talk about here in the church. Because our most... My most, your most natural impulse is to do the exact thing that Paul says is keeping the Jews away from Jesus. That my, our most natural impulse is to establish, in his words, is to establish our own righteousness. That my most natural impulse, even as I stand here in front of you today, and wonder of wonders that God calls me to come and tell you about the goodness and the grace of Jesus, my most natural impulse is to even use this to establish and measure my own goodness and my own righteousness. And so it is incredibly relevant to us today to look at our own hearts and to go, is this same thing at work in my heart that is at work in this passage? Is this same thing at work in my heart that was at work in these Jews who were longing for and looking after and anticipating a Messiah, and yet when they met Jesus, they said, I don't want that. I don't want Him. Our most natural impulse is to want to be good without God. It's to be good on our own, to be good on our own terms. And so this morning, what I want to talk about first of all, is, well, what is good? What does it mean to be good? We all define that in different ways. In fact, we create ways that we think are good, and we measure ourselves by them. And then I want to talk about why was Jesus then such an offense? How is he an offense to our righteousness and our goodness? And then I want to talk about what does it look like for us to walk away from our own goodness so that we might embrace something that is far, far far better. So what is it, what is good? What does it mean um, to be good? What does it mean to establish our own righteousness? The, the title of my sermon this morning that you may have seen is when good, when being good is bad. 
And some of you, you might have looked at that or you might hear me even saying it now, when being good is bad, and it might kind of make you angry, right? Because what you might think is, is what he's saying, is he saying that all, is, that it's possible that all of my effort, that all of my striving, that all of the things that I've done since I was a child, that all of my obedience, is he saying that it is possible that all of my goodness is not actually good. And I want to say this morning that that is exactly what I'm saying. That that is exactly what I'm saying. And it's not just me that's saying it. That it's Paul that's saying it to this in this passage. That, in fact, Paul, in this passage, prays for the salvation of many of whom were his friends. He prays for the salvation of of the Jews, because he says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Instead, he says they try to establish their own righteousness based upon works. In other words, they trusted in their own goodness. And Paul says because they trusted in their own goodness, they don't know Jesus. They don't know Him. Jesus Himself said that there are many who will come to me and say, Lord, we prophesied in your name. And Jesus says this. He says, depart from me. Who are you? I don't even know you. And that should, that should rattle us, right? That often Jesus says things that I don't want to say, that they're, they're, they rattle us, that they make us really uncomfortable. Why does that rattle us? Because we love to be good. We love being good, right? We love appearing good. We love, to, um, we love to be able to point to things about ourself and say, did you see what I did? Did you see how good that was? Did you see how well I did? We love to establish our own righteousness. Now, for the Jews in Jesus' day, what that looked like was a taking of God's law and manipulating it in such a way as to make it appear to be obtainable to them. And so what does that look like? That meant... Okay, we need to tithe this amount, you know, check. We need to um, go to the synagogue this many times, check. We need to observe the Sabbath, and here's some stipulations on exactly what that looks like and what it doesn't look like, and so you can perfectly do it, check. And the reason that they were doing all that is so that they could go back, and they could see, and they could measure, and they could understand, am I good or am I not? And I can also measure and I can also see if you're good or you're not. And based on these sort of external things and based on these external measurements, I can understand whether I'm in or whether I'm out or whether you're in or whether you're out. And it's also a very wonderful, convenient way of keeping people out that I don't want in. And at that point, what you have is a system where since you are the one who is in control of this, that you are the one who is also manipulating God. That Haven't you seen? I got dressed up and walked all over the neighborhood, right? Do you see what you now owe me? Now, how do we fall, how do we fall into that same trap? How do we, what, what does that look like? How, do, how, how is being good wrong in Greenville, South Carolina? And there are many, many, many ways that we could talk about how that's the case, right? And that each of us could, um, could think about in our own ways, in our own hearts, how this, how this plays out. 
But I think the primary way that, that we could begin at least talking about how this plays out and right here in, in beautiful Greenville, South Carolina, is also through religion, right? That it's also through religion that we're in the, the buckle of the Bible belt. That we are in, and in the buckle, buckle of the Bible, Bible belt, that's hard to say, the buckle of the Bible belt, we have defined, we have defined being good in many of the same ways that the Jews have as, as simply staying away from certain things, of not doing certain things, of not looking like certain things, and instead simply doing other things. I grew up in, the, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up in a culture. I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't taught that, but I grew up in a culture where that was the air that we breathed, right? It was all around us, and that was the air that I breathed in as well. And so what I thought is that, well, being a Christian, being connected to Jesus, being good means I do these certain things and I know that, that I'm a Christian because I do these certain things or these other people who don't, and that means they're not a Christian. And then I turned like 13, and I realized I could keep doing those certain things on the outside, but inside I was a total and utter wreck. That I thought things that were horrid, right? That I murdered people in my heart. That I did all of these things that were horrible, and I thought, well, that system's got to be wrong. And I think that most of us have gotten to a point, probably, if you're here um, today, if we're sitting in church, that, that, that that's too simple, right? That, that's, that we're a little more sophisticated than that, that we know that Christianity is not simply about being good. And even knowing that, we still we find ways in order to establish our own righteousness and to establish our own goodness, that, that there's still a sense in which we can still live by these laws that, that we create in order to appear good to the people around us and ultimately to appear good before God, um, that, that we still establish these same kind of laws. And so I may think, you know, I'm basically good because I didn't, I didn't party that hard in college. That, that I, now have, um, I now have a respectable job, right? And I work pretty hard at it. That I put in, you know, I put in a lot of hours a week. I put in more hours a week than a lot of the guys that I work with. I've got, you know, two to four children, and they're not completely off the chain, you know. They're pretty good. And I go to church, right? Um, I go to church. I even join the church. I, I go to a community group. And so why are we still talking about this? Could you just lay off? That we get defensive when what we think is our goodness is challenged. That we still, I think we still, we just live and breathe in a culture where it says what you produce will determine the level to which you're accepted. That we live in a, we live in a, a merit-based society that says what you produce will determine whether or not you are good and whether or not you're accepted. And so you start to ask yourself that question, what is it that I think is actually good? Where am I actually establishing my own righteousness? And you maybe just one test as you go, what is it that I have to slip into the conversation with somebody that I've just met when we only have about two minutes to talk? It's probably a good place to start. What is it that I want people, when they look at me, to instantly see? 
What is it, maybe another way, maybe we could reverse that, what is it that I don't want them to see? Maybe another way that we equate goodness, um, that, that we, um, is that we equate goodness with a particular ideological position, right? I mean, this is very common in our day, that, that where I stand politically is a measure, you know, I mean, it'll be interesting in like 50 years to look back at kind of the advent of, of social media where everyone suddenly became an expert, right? Um, and fights with one another really on, about politics and about things we, we may understand like a little bit because what, what we do often when we're doing that is we're kind of saying like, at least I'm not, you know, a conservative, or at least I'm not stupid enough to be a liberal, or at least I'm not, you know, we, we, find, we find kind of our ideological righteousness and maybe education. Just at, at, at least I don't, you know, homeschool, or at least I don't send my kids to public school, or at least I don't do these things that even as I talk about them, it's making you uncomfortable to talk about, right? And we find there's a certain bit of, well, this is, I've made the right choices, I'm doing it right. I'm doing the right thing. And you kind of stand back from those things. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but you kind of stand back from those things and you go, how silly, how silly we are to think that any of those things make us in any way good. I mean, if you think about the fact that, like, if God, you know, I mean, well, you think about the fact if you stop a maybe just the common Greenvillian on the street, and you ask them, how, you know, how are you made right with God? Assuming that you understand that, you're, that we're not born right with God. How are you made right with God? And the answer to that is usually going to be, I'm going to point to something that I think is good. And that I think I can somehow attain if I just work hard enough at it. And you think about how silly that appears to God, because God... You know, we might look at some people and we might see them externally and we might kind of go, well, they're pretty good, but God sees everything, right? He knows everything that you think about. He sees every thought that you've ever had. He knows everything that you've done in private and how silly it is to kind of go, I can convince myself that I can be, like, I can somehow be good before God, that, you know, it's like God knows all the lust and all the greed and all the pride that's ever existed in your heart, and we kind of go, well, in turn, I'm going to kind of hurl some prayers your way. I'm going to go to church. It's, it's, it's almost as if we can, we can live, we wouldn't ever say this, but we can almost live in such a way that it's almost like God is looking down and going, well, you know, I mean, he murdered like 20 people today in his heart. He committed adultery like 37 times. But that, that 30-second prayer was pretty amazing, Right? And he's a really hard worker. And, and so, you know, based on that, let's give, it a, let's give him a go, right? Let's give it a shot. Now, what, is, what are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of, of kind of falling in, um, not just individually, but as a people, into the trap of kind of equating goodness and morality with Christianity? Well, this is what Paul's really talking about because what he's saying is that there's an entire group of people that have done really exactly that, that they've equated their, their goodness, their ability to maintain and keep the law 
with, with their acceptance before God. And he said, that's the exact thing that's keeping you away from God. Well, what happens when we do that as a people? You know, I'll just say, like, one of the easiest ways to build, like, a large, thriving church full of people who look really good is that you figure out what their culture determines to be the level of goodness and that you tell them that they're really, really close to it. And if they gather in this place, then we'll help you get the rest of the way there and we'll also keep out the people who threaten that. And there are so many examples of churches that that are doing and have done and are tempted to do that exact, that exact thing. So in other words, the danger of reducing the gospel to something you do is that the church can become a club, right? That the church can become a club that is really just the same type of people who gather because they all feel comfortable being around other people who think that they are good in the same ways. And so we are never bothered by other people who maybe don't act like us or look like us or talk like us. And the tragedy of that, of course, is that, well, that doesn't look anything, first of all, like Jesus' ministry, but the tragedy of that is, is that it, it keeps out the people who are hurting. It keeps out the people who are poor. It keeps out the people who are inconvenient. It keeps out the people who are drunks. It keeps out the people of other races that we may not like. And the church becomes a club for people who all like the same things. And there is a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. And I know that maybe some of us are thinking, wait a second, is he still saying that we're not supposed to be good? Is that what we're saying? We're saying, don't be good? We're not supposed to be good? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is what Paul says later in this letter, and he says, all that is not of faith is sin. That all that is not of faith is sin. If all of your goodness, if all of your striving, if all of your effort, if all of the things that you're doing right now are simply to establish yourself and establish your own life, then what Paul's saying is that it is keeping you away from Jesus rather than bringing you closer to Him. And that's exactly why Paul says that Jesus, and the Scripture says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and He is a rock of offense. Because people who've worked very hard to be good don't like people who reject their definition of good, right? The people who've worked very hard to be good don't like people who come in and reject their definition of being good. If I find my value in the fact that I made it through college without sleeping around or that I've never cheated on my taxes or that my house is pretty neat most of the time, then I want Jesus to accept me based upon that as well. And the quickest way to, I think, find out where you're trusting then in your own goodness is is to meet somebody in the communion line as you're going to take the body and the blood of Jesus who is the antithesis of everything that you think is good. That the quickest way to understand what you're actually trusting in as your righteousness, as your goodness, as what you've met as as that of that standard is to meet someone in the communion line who is the antithesis of that, who is also coming to Jesus. When you think about it that way, that'll make me stumble. That'll make you stumble. 
And that's exactly what Jesus does because no one made good people more mad than Jesus did, right? I mean, it's almost like, I heard one person say that it's like Jesus is the best kept secret of the Gospels, right? That we go back and read them and you go, he's astounding because what Jesus did, that he goes into this group of people who all have established, their, or they're, they're working to establish their own righteousness and he hangs out with drunks and he hangs out with gluttons and he hangs out with prostitutes and he hangs out with sinners and he refuses to fawn over their obedience because he knows that it's just a way to avoid him. And it drives them to the point of picking up stones to throw at him, right? It drives them to the point of killing him. And so Jesus goes around. Um, You follow him in his ministry, which is a very odd ministry in a lot of ways. He He goes around and he tells stories. And he tells stories. You remember one of them was a story about laborers in a vineyard. And he talks about laborers who got hired at the beginning of the day and they worked all day. And yet there were other laborers who got hired at like five minutes till closing time. And at the end of the day, they all got paid the same thing. And man, that made the people who had worked all day mad, right? And he tells stories about, he tells a story about a a son who took his father's inheritance and he took his inheritance and he goes and he completely squanders it on wine and women. There's no money left to the point where he's starving. He has nothing else. And he goes stumbling back home. And what happens is his father runs out to meet him. And he puts a robe on him. And he embraces him. And he says, kill the fatted calf. My son has come home. He was lost and now he's found. And they throw this huge party. And Jesus was telling that story not to people who were longing to hear about the forgiveness of God, that he was telling that story to people who were watching him eat with sinners and drunks and gluttons and saying, why does he do that? And so Jesus told them that story. And in that story, you remember the end, there's this older brother who had always obeyed. And he had always been good. And he said, why didn't you throw a party for me exposing the fact that all of my obedience has been in an effort to manipulate you (laughs) so that I would get the candy at the end because I dressed up and I walked through the neighborhood and why did I not get the reward? Jesus isn't impressed with your obedience. He's not impressed with your politics. He's not impressed with your ideological stances. He's not impressed with our success. He's not impressed with our morality. In fact, he loves us enough to offend us so that he can give us something that is so much better. Something that is so much greater. That his grace is a stumbling block to good people. That his grace is an offense to the people who've always done the right things their whole life. That his grace, as Brennan, Brennan Manning puts it, Um, is vulgar. If you look back at the quote on your front of your, your bulletin, listen to this. He says, My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5, a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. 
It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all of our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. But grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. So what does it look like, then, for those of us who do believe, what does it look like for us to daily walk away from our goodness? Daily to examine ourselves, to go, to, what is my standard of righteousness? Am I establishing that on my own? What does it look like for us to daily walk away from that? I've got a few examples, but I'm just going to, for the sake of time, just use one. And the example that I want to use is the one who's writing this letter. That Paul himself is such a perfect picture of what it means to walk away from your own goodness so that you might embrace something that is far better and far greater. And listen to what Paul says of himself in Philippians chapter 3. And this is the, I, I like the way the New Living Translation puts this. He says, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now listen to this. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Throw away what you've worked so hard for so that you might gain something that you could never, ever earn. Why is this good news for us? This is, why, why is this good news? I think it's good news on so many levels, but I think it's good news for us because we are exhausted. We are exhausted trying to be good. We are exhausted trying to measure up. We are exhausted thinking that the next promotion is going to validate our existence and justify who we are. We're exhausted with trying to be good. And maybe some of us, for the first time, are realizing that all of our exhaustion is just because we want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to be embraced like that son who came home reeking of sin. And maybe for the first time, or maybe for the thousandth thousandth time, that we're realizing that that's exactly what he's offering us. That Jesus is the one who said, Come unto me, all you who are weary, who are so tired, who are so exhausted, trying to be good and never quite getting there. Come to me, all you who are weary, and all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? 
that it is free. That we can drop our shoulders. That we can take a deep breath. That we can relax. And what we can do is then is that we can be freed up to go and love other people. That we can be freed up to maybe go and spend time with and love and draw in and bring people into this place where we would say, Come, you sinners. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we believe, but we pray that you would, in fact, help our unbelief. Father, that you would help us to examine, to look at, to see our own hearts, to see that um, we repent over our sin, but we also need to repent over our goodness and over our righteousness, because often it's the very thing that's standing in the way of us seeing Jesus. Father, we thank you that you would dare to love us the way that you do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.